We're going through our series, The Hard Time Letters, Practical Life Skills from Paul's Prison Epistles. Today, we arrive at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18a. The title of the message, Staying Up and Down Times. Let's begin. Philippians 1, 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Can you believe it? Here is Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, incarcerated for no good reason. He is in prison. The leader of the Christians of his day, he is in prison. And some people are upset about it, but he wants them to know it's actually working out quite well. It's actually advancing the gospel. And that everyone in the whole imperial guard and all the others who know about it know that Paul's imprisonment is for the cause of Jesus Christ. What a guy. I want you to know he's already setting the tone. As we look at this, these first two verses in our text today, he's already setting the tone for the way this is going to go. We'll pick up with verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only... Is everyone, has everyone learned that this is all about Christ, the fact that Paul has been imprisoned, and it's spread through the whole guard and everywhere else. Most of the brothers, most of the Christians, have become even more confident. They're braver to speak the truth in the name of the Lord without any fear. But I want you to look at this in verse 14. The word that jumps out to me the most is the word most. So I question that. Most? Why not all? This means that some are still timid. Most just means some, a majority rather than a minority. But the, the majority are, are very confident and they're brave. But there are some who still aren't. And Paul's not choosing to focus on the some who aren't. He's choosing to focus on those who are encouraged and are bolder. Pay attention to that behavior of Paul's. Choosing to focus on the good. That's what he does. And God is inspiring him to write words the way he's writing them so that we can learn this behavior. You'll see. Moving on to verse 15. Some... Indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Oh, but others from goodwill. Now, that's interesting. There are some that have ill motives. But there are others that do it out of goodwill. And we move on to verse 16, and I want you to pay attention to the slide up behind. You'll see... It says in the, in the green, I've highlighted, 
from goodwill, because now we go into a different type of uh, speaking, and oftentimes when we read, we, we don't understand what we're reading. So I want you to understand verse 16, it says, the latter do it out of love. The latter, anytime you see that, that typically refers to the second part. And the second part of verse 15 is, others do it out of goodwill. Others preach Christ out of goodwill. So the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So notice now I have highlighted in the red the former, and that's the first part. Those some of the some of the preachers are preaching out of envy and rivalry, bad motives. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. They're selfish people, want to prop themselves up, and they're not sincere. But they're actually trying to cause harm to Paul while he's imprisoned. They're so selfish and so thoughtless. In fact, not only are they thoughtless, they're purposely trying to cause Paul harm when he's already in prison. That's horrible. Wow. But look what Paul says next. What then? Verse 18, the first part of verse 18. What then? Some translations, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. It doesn't matter if they speak poorly of Paul. It doesn't matter if their intentions are to cause harm to Paul. As long as Christ is proclaimed. And in that, Paul rejoices. It's okay. It's okay that they have bad motives. As long as Christ is preached. It's okay if they intend me harm. As long as Christ is preached. Now, on this slide, you'll see two figures. And they can represent two people, male or female, doesn't really matter. And one of them creates a what is known as a logical syllogism. And I'll be glad to teach you more about this if you'd like to know. But this is the equation for a logical syllogism. P stands for primary, S stands for secondary, and those little three dots is the symbol for therefore. Conclusion, primary, secondary, therefore, conclusion. So there's three premises. And so this person presents the logical syllogism. It's an argument. It's uh, something to present in a debate. So the other person can reasonably respond with their logical syllogism or pick apart that other person's logical syllogism if there's flaws within it. But you see, both are discussing uh, the matter. This is when an error happens. Look at this. You'll see the red line. This is when the person, instead of discussing the matter, begins to attack the person. Oh, yeah? Well, you're this way or that way, or you made a mistake one time. You remember that? So you could be talking about a particular subject, and another person then attacks the person. This is called, in Latin, argumentum ad hominem. And if you want to know what that means in English, argument to the man. Instead of discussing the matter at hand, you begin to attack the person. We see this all the time. 
Politicians do it. Even in social media and in the news, it is rampant. Very few people actually discuss the matter at hand, the argument. Most prefer to attack the person. It's easier. It takes a more simple-minded person to do that, but it oftentimes shuts down the argument. Because not everyone is rational. Not everyone chooses to be rational. If you'd like to learn more about logical fallacies, if you could, find the book Don't You Believe It by Arlie J. Hoover. It's out of print, and they are very hard to find. Most people don't care to be rational. They'd rather be emotional. You'll see that in juries a lot of times, although we've seen two cases recently that seem to be handled well by juries. But even lawyers will use irrational arguments to sway emotionally juries, or they'll try. And this was tried in a recent case that we watched, try to sway the jury with emotion. But then the jury came through and actually, rationally, came up with the best conclusion. If you want to learn more about this, find a book like Don't You Believe It by Arlie J. Hoover. If you're not interested in that sort of thing and you find this book, please purchase it. I will pay you back. These books are rare, hard to find. I've had a couple. I've loaned them out. They've not been returned. I'd like to get another copy. I want to read that passage again. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15, through the end of our text. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others do so from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now back to that argument. You see, Paul is not attacking those people. What he's doing is he's saying, as long as Christ is proclaimed, that's what matters. However, when it comes down to it, when you are having a discussion and you're discussing, discussing the matter at hand, you're talking about, let's say, biblically speaking, we're talking about doctrine. That's worth having a debate about because doctrine's important. But Paul is refusing to attack the person. See, the person, in this particular case, there are people that are doing things with bad motives, bad people. But their doctrine is correct, so there is no reason to get into a discussion about what they're teaching because they are proclaiming Christ unadulterated. Yes, they're bad people. But the truth is still being proclaimed in Christ Jesus. Remember this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. In Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, that doesn't stand for monosodium glutamate, it's for The Message. Eugene Peterson's, um, it's actually a paraphrase. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 2, it says, It pleases me that you continue to remember and honor me by keeping up the traditions of the faith I taught you. All actual authority stems from Christ. Some of your translations might say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, 
Follow me as I follow Christ. Grab this idea. As your mentor doesn't follow Christ, because we all mess up, all Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, we all mess up. So if you're following a mentor, a mentor is leading you, follow them as they follow Christ. If they deviate, they mess up, don't follow that. None of them would have you do that anyway. That's what Paul's saying here, follow me as I follow Christ. All authority stems from Christ. So when you have somebody and you prop them up, that's one of the problems. We put people on pedestals like a pastor or an elder, a Sunday school teacher, or some mentor in your life. You put them on a pedestal, and when they make a mistake, then it's the end of the world. Well, everybody makes mistakes. It's not the end of the world. Follow them as they follow Christ. If they deviate from Christ, don't follow that. There is a passage I want to remind you about because we go through struggles in life, like Paul, who's in prison. We go through struggles. Recently, we've had some deaths in our church. Our deaths of uh, family members have had deaths in their family, uh, in our church. A couple of families. And before that, we've lost actually church members, three of them, to death. I got a phone call out here as I'm visiting family in the Midwest. I got a phone call late at night. Prisoner. Wanted to have the chaplain come by and see him as he is dying in the hospital. Now, I can't. Too far away. They had to get someone else to do that. I got a call that early the next morning notifying me that the prisoner had passed. It's very sad to hear that because this prisoner had passed and they had to notify the next of kin. And I turned out to be the best option. This person died after spending years in prison, died in a hospital, no family, no friends around. The only person he could think to call was the chaplain and the only person that the prison could notify of the death was the chaplain. He died alone. And those are sad things, the deaths that we've had in the church, the families that have had deaths in their family in the church recently, this death I just told you about, that this man died so alone. Those are, those are difficult things and sad things. Some of us were, remi- were reminded of recent things that have gone wrong in our families as we tried to celebrate Thanksgiving and we had some negatives there. Negative things happen. Uh, We have financial stresses, we have health stresses, we have job stresses, we have moving stresses, relocation stresses. We have all kinds of these stresses. They're very real. And sometimes we feel very alone and isolated. But I'll remind you of what Jesus taught early on in Matthew chapter 6. If you'll remember, when he's talking about stress, he says, don't, just don't, 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 don't be anxious. And then he says at the end of that dialogue or monologue of Jesus, he says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, if we prioritize Jesus and his kingdom, He'll take care of all those other things we tend to worry about. 
Don't forget that. Make Jesus number one in all that you do, and then everything else becomes secondary. Do you see how psychologically therapeutic that in and of itself is? When you make Jesus number one, everything else is secondary. Even your stresses, your worries, your problems, they are still there and they're very real. But when they become secondary, you're not coddling them. You're not dwelling on them. You're not constantly going to sleep thinking about them. You're not constantly messing up at work because you can't stop thinking about them. You have Jesus as number one and everything else is secondary. Very, very good for your mind and your soul when you make Jesus number one, the way it's supposed to be. And if you question that, you might want to pay careful attention to what Jesus said a little bit further in His ministry in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 and following. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Verses 37 through 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You have to make Jesus number one. And when you do, what will happen is that there will be times when the closest people to you will reject you, sometimes even family. They will, not, they will not accept it, that you have decided to make Jesus number one. Some of you have experienced this. You make Jesus number one, and so you make decisions in your life that are based on Jesus being number one. We're not going to watch that movie or that series. We're not going to listen to that kind of music. We're not going to practice this kind of thing because Jesus is number one. And your family will then say something like, Sometimes some some of your family will say, you're a fanatic. Have you joined some sort of a cult? What's going on? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and He'll take care of everything else. And if you do make Jesus number one, and you have family members who don't, they will not understand that. Hopefully you'll win them over. And if you don't, though, it will divide. But you must do it. You must take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you'll remember, we went through 1st and 2nd Peter before we we're in this series. And in 2nd Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 1, Peter said, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You see, Paul, in saying, it's okay that these guys, what difference does it make that these guys have bad motives, and they're trying to cause me harm, and they're selfish? as long as Christ is proclaimed. He is not saying it's okay to teach false doctrine. 
Throughout the New Testament, we learn that doctrine is vital. In fact, if you'll remember in Revelation, we just went through a study in the church. There was a group that studied through the book of Revelation. You'll remember as it, as it begins that one of the things that's addressed is that there is a practice that's crept into the church. Uh, a denomination has, has infiltrated the church. One of the churches... You'll see these words in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, the NIV says. So we're not supposed to engage in false doctrine. What difference does it make if people preach Christ with bad motives and they're intending to cause harm to me or someone else? But the reality is he's not talking about the doctrine. If the doctrine is right, it's okay. The motives, the people that are preaching it, if they're not good people, as long as Christ is preached, that's good. But it is not good if they're preaching something that is not Christ. In fact, if you'll remember, Paul also tells us in the pastoral epistles, not the prison epistles, but the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, this is one verse worth underlining, highlighting, and noting in your Bibles. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's in the NIV. You see, doctrine is an issue of salvation. It's okay if people preach the truth, the gospel, everything that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming Christ. That's okay if their motives are bad, if they're selfish people. They're bad people but they're preaching the truth. At least Christ is proclaimed. But false doctrine is not okay. Remember, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and He'll, he'll take care of everything else. Now, how are you going to know if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, if you're making Christ number one, how are you going to know when they're, they're preaching the gospel or when they're preaching false doctrine? How, do you, how are you going to know the difference? The only way you're going to know the difference is if you know God's word. Did you know that the word of God is supposed to be committed to memory as best we can? Yeah, you, you hear preachers say you should memorize this verse and memorize that verse, and you think, oh, I'm not good at that. Let me tell you something about me. I struggle with memorizing Scripture. I know it seems like I don't, but I have to work hard at it. There is a passage that says you're supposed to memorize by, uh, Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and following, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The part I want you to pay attention to is the first part, Colossians 3.16a. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How are you going to have the word of Christ dwelling in you richly if you haven't committed it to memory. That's how you let the Word of Christ dwell in you, is to commit it to memory. 
So maybe you should start with Colossians 3.16a. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then you will be able to actively know the difference between false doctrine and the gospel. Last week when we had a, a message that was about the holidays, a timely message for the holidays, I showed you this slide that you now see where the, uh, a lens, this is a blue lens, and the, the white is, is your vision. You're looking out, and then you, your vision then goes through a lens. And this particular lens is blue, so then once you're, you look through the blue lens, everything you see on the other side of that lens turns out to be blue. And the analogy I gave you was... Choose your lens. Choose to see things in a positive light if you can. Rather than dwelling on negative, dwell on the good. I want to bring that to mind right now because I want to talk to you about what Paul is actually doing in this text. It would be nice if someone were to come up with a, the, the ideal praise to criticism ratio, if we could actually come up with numbers. Maybe you'll recall I shared with you many months ago when I first began preaching with Central Kitsap Christian Church, a study was done out of Harvard Business Review. It was done on March 15th. It was at least published on March 15th, 2013. You can look this up in the way I've worded it on the slide, the ideal praise-to-criticism ratio. They did a very exhaustive study. <coughs> Excuse me. And in this study, they had 60 teams that they monitored to see their performance levels. And they determined how many praises it takes after a, negative, after a criticism is given, a negative thing is said to them, how many praises does it take to get them back to their performance level before the negative criticism? They discovered that ideal ratio is 5.6 to 1. Someone gives you a criticism, something negative happens, something negative is said, it takes 5.6 positives or praises to bring you back to your performance level, your standard. And typically, what you do with that number is you round it up to six. So six to one will bring you back to standard. Because how do you do six-tenths of a praise? So six to one brings you back up to your typical standard self. As Christians, if you want to encourage others, build them up beyond their standard, make them better, help them improve, help them be more positive, then you would want to say... Let's take it up a notch, at least seven or more. Seven plus to one will encourage others to perform even better than standard, than their standard. So in my mind, in a world in which most people are giving criticisms and negatives, where it's abundant, your kids at school are getting negatives, your coworkers are getting negatives, your Christian peers here in the church are getting negatives, your neighbors are getting negatives. The cashiers at the stores are getting negatives. The people that you email are getting negatives. So for every negative they get, they need seven plus to make them better than their standard. 
So Christians, in my opinion, we need to be seven plus in it all over the place. To everyone we come in contact with, we've got to find a way to do positive encouragement seven plus times to everyone with whom we come in contact with on a regular basis. And I got to tell you, if you haven't tried that, this is hard to do. You have to work at it. It's not going to come naturally. Paul helps us further if we could go just kind of fast forward to the, toward the end of this particular book that we've just begun studying, Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, look the way Paul words this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So he tells us, dwell on the good. I'm going through a book right now. We, we, it's, uh, you see it on the slide. It's about uh, amateur radio, uh, you know, the ham radio, passing it uh, the easy way. And you see this book, uh, Pass Your Amateur Radio General Class Test the Easy Way. And I'm going through this book, and I chose this one because we had another book. And, and the standard in passing ham radio tests, the standard, uh, the way they've been teaching it for years is you go through and you simply keep practicing taking the test over and over and over again. It's all multiple choice. So you keep practicing taking the test over and over again until you get better and better and better. And it usually takes many, many times of practicing the practice test until you can pass it. This book, The Easy Way, it only teaches you the right answers. So the argument for this book coming out is that if you keep taking the practice test over and over again, only failing, failing, failing over and over and over again until you finally figure it out, what, you, what you're doing is you are recalling the right answer plus the three other wrong answers every single time. You are looking at three out of four of the answers, the wrong answers, you're looking at those when you shouldn't be dwelling on those. So this book then teaches you only the right answers, only the good, not the bad. And this book makes, supposedly, passing your test so much easier because you only dwell on the good. Don't even focus on the bad. book I recommended as we began, Philippians, uh, Laugh Again by Chuck Swindoll. In it, he had a phrase that he brought up over and over again. Now, I got to tell you, in the prison setting, in the church setting, out in the public setting, police officers, or however we're doing these things, when you, if you're at home even, and you have a spouse, and you say, calm down. If you tell somebody else to calm down, in these days, people don't like to be told what to do, and it's not very effective, so we're told. However, I can tell you what is effective is the phrase that Chuck Swindoll gives in his book, Laugh Again, that he had to say to himself, that he encourages us to say to ourselves. Biblically speaking, it's a good practice. Here's the phrase. Lighten up. It was a great Christmas gift that I found on a rector set for my son for Christmas. It had all these things. You can make helicopters and cars and all these. It was a remote control. It was an amazing erector set. It was like a $200, $300 erector set that I was able to pick up for like 70 bucks. I thought, wow, what a deal. So it's going to be his big Christmas gift. 
I gave it to him, Stephanie and I gave it to him as his big Christmas gift that year. He's a little boy, and I told him, I said, okay, so uh, I'm going to put this up in your closet. Don't open this up until I'm with you, because I don't want you losing the parts, or you're not going to be able to build all these things. Okay, yes, sir. So I put it up in his closet, and one day I, I come home, and I see him in the floor playing with his erector set. And that phrase, uh, lighten up, was inside of me. It had, I had to bring it to mind because I gritted my teeth and I thought, what in the world? I told him, don't get that down and don't open that up until, I, until I'm with you so you don't lose the parts. And as I approached his room and I saw him enjoying playing with those on the floor all by himself, that phrase came to mind as I was about to get on to him, lighten up. So I paused for a moment and thought, lighten up. And I thought about it. I believe it was March. Three months had passed since Christmas. And a dad who was missing in action, constantly working, not home very much at all, had not had the time to sit down with his son for his best Christmas gift and open it up and play with him. And I got choked up. Lighten up. What kind of dad are you? Lighten up. You can't get on to him. You're the one that messed up. So I got down on the floor and I played with him. Yes, he had already lost some parts. I couldn't help but notice when he looked at me like, Dad, what are you doing? When I laid down on the floor to play with him. I had to tell myself to lighten up. He wasn't used to his dad lightening up like that. It was the beginning of a good moment. I encourage you too, also, when you start to get stressed, when you start to get upset about something, keep that phrase in your mind that we could learn from the book of Philippians. Lighten up. An influencer of mine, a mentor, Seth Wilson. Many books have been written about him. You see one up on the slides, uh, written by Lynn Gardner, who's also a professor of mine. That's a book about the life of Brother Wilson. There's another book. I couldn't find an image for it. It's My book is in storage, uh, but it's called The Mind of Christ, and it has an image of Seth Wilson on the front of it because he exemplified the mind of Christ. But when talking about stressful matters, difficult times, things that weigh us down, make us anxious and worry, he said this, Romans 8.28 is just as true today as it is when it was written. Well, what does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. It's true. So in that final part of our text, look at this again. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. This is Philippians 1, 15 and following. But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, 
Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So the title of the message, Staying Up in Down Times. There's five things I'd like to refresh your memory of that we've gone over today. And you can take these home with you and put them into practice. First, make, keep Christ first. If you make Christ number one in your life, everything else becomes secondary. Some of you haven't made that decision, and you need to. You have no idea how great it is to have everything else secondary when you make Christ first, how everything else in life is a little bit more tolerable, more navigable when you have Christ number one. Those of you who've made Christ number one but have deviated a little bit from the path and have been stressing too much, worrying too much, anxious about too much, you need to get back to keeping Christ. It's number one. You'll be able to navigate through life a whole lot better. Like Paul is showing us in his life, as he's imprisoned, he's got Christ first. Second, lighten up. We just talked about that. <clears throat> Life's going to come with difficulties. We don't have to be so negative. We don't have to be so quick to get upset. Lighten up. Tell yourself, lighten up. Three, dwell on the good. You could choose to dwell on the bad. You could coddle your problems. You could coddle other people's problems, coddle other people's negatives. You could focus on negatives, but if you want to navigate through life better, if you want to stay up in down times, dwell on the good, as the end of Philippians tells us. Four, build others up. Remember the ratio? Seven plus to one. You've got to focus on trying to build others up. Like Paul, who is in prison, while others are actually trying to harm him out of their selfishness, he still praises God that the gospel is being preached. And he's encouraging the others that are worried about him, telling them, hey, this has actually served to advance the gospel. Build others up. And the fifth and final thing, Draw others to Christ. Too many times I hear too many stories about people who are repulsed by the behaviors of people who claim to be Christian. They're so repulsed that they refuse to attend a church service or a Bible study or even a Christian function because of the repulsive behaviors of people that they know who claim to be Christian. You know how you have the magnets, and if you have them the wrong way, they, they repulse each other, they push away? May I encourage you to have things the right way so that you are like a magnet. People want what you've got, and what you've got is Christ. Have a magnetic personality that draws others to Christ like Paul. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us these words of encouragement. Help us to do our part 
In Jesus' name, amen.